Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovation and approaches. I'm your host, Von Tone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. I just returned from ASU GSB Summit, where my guest today, Ryan Craig, has been a regular fixture with attendees lining up to meet with him. Ryan Craig is an investor and thought leader who for many years has been shaking up the educational establishment and cultivating last-mile solutions for students to successfully transition from education to work. In addition to being a managing director at Achieve Partners and University Ventures, Ryan has broad influence as a regular columnist in Forbes, TechCrunch, Inside Higher Education, and Fortune, amongst many other publications. He is also the author of several books, including A New You, Faster and Cheaper Alternatives to College, which was named in the Wall Street Journal as one of the books of the year for 2018. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ryan. And thank you for giving me a blurb for my last book. Absolutely. You know I'm a big fan of your writings. Some of your positions are extremely provocative and predictably cause a stir within the higher education world. Which article got the biggest response and what did you write about? Oh, you're going to laugh. Um, so actually, the one that got the biggest response uh, was a curmudgeonly piece that I wrote, I don't know, maybe three years ago about esports <laughs> and questioning whether esports uh, should or could be fairly treated as sports and then uh, really attacking colleges and universities that were launching esports uh, certificate and degree programs as sort of a transparent marketing enrollment ploy to enroll and attract students who wanted to come to college to play video games. Be careful who you attack. And, and I'd like to think I don't attack higher ed. I love higher ed. My first job, uh, my, all my first jobs were in traditional higher education. And sometimes you criticize or find fault in the ones you love. And that's certainly my view with regard to higher ed. But if you're going after a very specific interest group with uh, uh, a lot of uh, passion and fervor, uh, beware, because uh, to this day, I'm still haunted by esports uh, aficionados who find that article and uh, come at me as only a gamer would. That's a great story. And how would listeners subscribe to your uh, newsletters, Ryan? Oh, uh, so yeah, I write a biweekly uh, newsletter called The Gap Letter, uh, which is gapletter.com. You can sign up. And most of them are sort of reprinted in uh, Forbes or Inside Higher Education. Well, it's a great uh, reason to wake up in the day and, and get one of your newsletters in your inbox. Yeah, we try and keep it fun. I mean, look, the, the area that you and I uh, work in uh, and are passionate about uh, is just so, so broad-based and affects so many uh, aspects of uh, our country. And so it's important, but I try and make it fun as well and, and always sort of start with a moment of levity before we dive into the subject at hand. Absolutely. So Ryan, you're a venture capitalist who is trying to solve higher education problems. Now help our audience understand why private investors are entering this education to work space. Is that a good thing for students? Yeah, I think it I think it really is. I think it really is. I mean, if you think about the challenges that we have in sort of trying to bridge this education to employment gap, and if you're listening to this podcast, you probably agree with me that our current education ecosystem isn't doing as good a job as it as it could be. Uh, of addressing the needs of employers and employment, uh, as evidenced by the fact that this week, for the first time in American history, we now have over 10 million unfilled jobs 
in the U.S. And while millions of those jobs are certainly frontline service uh, jobs that uh, employers just simply aren't paying enough for, and that's why they're unfilled, millions of them are also sort of high-paid, high-skill uh, positions where employers just simply can't find the skilled talent uh, they need. So we have this gap. In our view, uh, this is really a sort of many-to-many problem, meaning uh, there are thousands of uh, schools or institutions uh, trying to prepare individuals uh, for uh, the workforce, and we have millions of employers uh, sort of reaching out and trying to find this talent. We think that this problem screams for intermediaries uh, to stand between uh, the current education ecosystem and the world of employers because no single uh, higher education institution is capable of reaching out to dozens, let alone hundreds of employers in a sort of deep and systematic way. And no employer is really interested in doing that. They frankly have better things to do with their time, like run their business. And so if you if you look in other parts of the world where uh, we've seen the sort of the emergence of, uh, of intermediaries in terms of uh, really establishing a, a true uh, alternative pathway, and if the title of my last book is Faster and Cheaper Alternatives to College, uh, what you see is that uh, there are these in- intermediaries um, that are standing between the education ecosystem and, and employers, and that's how sort of apprenticeships have thrived uh, in Germany and Switzerland, Austria, Sweden, and now the U- U.K. Uh, as well. In most cases, those uh, apprenticeships are run by trade association groups that are you know, a century old uh, or chambers of commerce uh, or unions. Uh, and if you look in the U.S. at where sort of apprenticeships uh, have thrived, uh, we have about a half million apprentices uh, currently in the U.S. It's all been in the building and industrial trades, the blue-collar trades, where unions have sort of served as the organizing principle uh, for it. Uh, and so if we look and see sort of where are these alternative uh, pathways, where are these intermediaries needed the most— uh, they're needed the most in the fastest-growing sectors of the economy, where the jobs are, where the unfilled jobs are, and that's primarily tech uh, and healthcare. And as we look and see sort of what intermediaries uh, are available to sort of organize these pathways or apprenticeships in the same way as they've been organized in the building and construction trades or in Central European countries, they don't exist. Those intermediaries are not not obvious, and so. We think that the role that private capital can play is to sort of try and build these apprenticeships out of the entities that are sort of best positioned uh, to serve in those roles. And that's exactly what we're doing at Achieve Partners is we are acquiring business services solutions providers that operate in skill gap sectors that have dozens or hundreds of clients for whom uh, access to uh, trained talent uh, is a huge impediment to growth, and it's also an issue for their clients, and where we can essentially use the idea of being an intermediary uh, in the labor market or an apprenticeship program, uh, use that as a way to accelerate the growth uh, of this company. It's not simply a, a sort of cost area, the idea of sort of entry-level employee training. Uh, it's actually a, a significant revenue opportunity uh, or enhancement for these companies. And so A great example of how private capital uh, and the private market can solve uh, a major social problem. Because if you can fast forward a decade and imagine dozens of these new apprenticeship pathways emerging in tech and healthcare in every major metropolitan area of the country, I believe we'll have, uh, as a nation, a very different view of sort of socioeconomic mobility and the American dream 
which could forestall some of the same uh, social and, and even political problems that we've had as a country over the last decade. Uh, I, I think that a lot of the issues we've had are due to the fact that uh, there are tens of millions of Americans who feel stuck and for whom the only answer is multi-years of college or university that's going to cost them tens of thousands of dollars a year with no guarantee that they'll complete a no guarantee of an employment outcome out of that. And we need to find a better alternative for those tens of millions of people. So Ryan, your discussion of intermediaries and apprenticeship is a great segue into my next question, which is um, that you've recently raised a round of money in a new fund called Putting America Back to Work Fund. How will you invest those dollars? And give us some examples of worthy investments and what your firm will do to uh, magnify the impact of those investments beyond the obvious of putting in capital. Yeah, no, exactly right. So it's not we're not just making passive investments here. We're actually, this is a buyout fund. Uh, so we're actually acquiring control of companies that we feel are well-suited to serve as these intermediaries, these labor market intermediaries. Uh, the first investment we made, we just announced it last month, uh, was in a company called Optimum Healthcare IT, which is a healthcare IT solutions business. So they basically deliver IT services to hospitals and hospital systems and healthcare systems across the country. About 70% of U.S. large U.S. hospital systems uh, deploy Epic uh, as their core patient unit record system. Uh, and everyone uh, in the healthcare system or hospital needs to learn to use Epic, and they hate it uh, <laughs> almost universally. It is very hard to learn, not intuitive, uh, but it's crucial because that's where all the patient data is uh, stored. But in order to configure Epic uh, to be useful and productive uh, for the system, and, and, and critically, in order to integrate it with the hundreds of other uh, systems and platforms that a hospital will use, uh, you need uh, an Epic certified analyst to do it. That means that they've actually been trained on the Epic platform, uh, and that's hundreds and hundreds of hours of training to learn to do that kind of configuration or integration. So, you know, you, you won't be surprised uh, to find that uh, there's not a single college or university in America that offers training on the Epic platform. Uh, in fact, if you become an Epic certified analyst, it's almost happening by accident. You've probably worked for Epic, or you've worked for a company like Optimum, uh, that delivers uh, Epic-related services. Uh, but until now, there's never been sort of an Epic apprenticeship program, uh, despite the fact that there are 50,000 open, unfilled uh, Epic-certified analyst jobs in the country. Uh, so Optimum, when we met them, uh, their biggest impediment to growth was access to Epic-certified analysts. They couldn't find enough, and when they could find them, they had to pay them a lot of money to do that work. Their hospital clients uh, can't find Epic certified analysts. In fact, one reason uh, why uh, our healthcare system hasn't reaped the full benefits of the digital revolution is that we just don't have enough tech talent working in hospital systems to do the sort of configurations and integrations to make everything work as it could. Uh, and so uh, we bought the company. <laughs> we bought the company uh, and we launched what's called Optimum Career Path. And Optimum Career Path is an apprenticeship program uh, where we hire train and place uh, new EPIC certified analysts and other uh, healthcare IT uh, verticals uh, that Optimum works in. And we are uh, deploying these newly trained analysts uh, on projects uh, that a given hospital system might hire Optimum to do with the understanding that at the end of the project, 
the hospital has the opportunity to essentially take that talent and onboard them as their own employees. Uh, we call that talent as a service. So we're trying to take these solutions or services businesses and transform them into talent as a service companies. And by doing so, uh, the benefit for the employer is obvious. Uh, the hospitals now get access to trained uh, and less expensive talent than they could find otherwise. Uh, but from the perspective of the individual and uh, our country, uh, we're providing a, a frictionless new pathway to employment in a space where there was no pathway previously. So this Putting America Back to Work Fund, we actually have a goal, which is over the life of the fund, we hope to uh, put 100,000 Americans into good jobs they would not have been able to attain if not for the creation of these new apprenticeship pathways uh, that we're, we're building. And healthcare IT is the first. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that uh, by the end of this year, we'll have 100 newly trained optimum career path uh, consultants active in billing at clients. And we think that number could scale tenfold uh, in as little as 12 months. Ah, congratulations. And I love that phrase, talent as a service. What a wonderful uh, new model for workforce development. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it has all of the elements of a traditional apprenticeship program. I mean, the, the, the beauty of apprenticeship is that uh, you remove the friction for the candidate. Uh, so optimum career path eliminates uh, the cost because uh, students aren't paying. Uh, in fact, they're, they're being paid <laughs> and they're being hired. So it eliminates the, the, the employment uncertainty as well. Uh, so it's sort of a no-brainer, and we just need many, many more of these. And obviously for the end employer, the hospital, it eliminates the friction on their side too because hospitals aren't hiring uh, unproven talent. But in this case, uh, the talent is able to prove themselves before the employer needs to make a hiring decision. Those are really the key elements of, an, of a traditional apprenticeship program. The only difference between what Optimum Career Path is doing and a, a Department of Labor uh, registered apprenticeship program is just that we haven't filled out all the forms uh, with the Department of Labor yet, and we're not taking any sort of public money or, or we owe a money uh, to do what we're doing. Uh, and we can do it that way because uh, the demand is just so great uh, that at the end of the day, the hospitals, the end clients, the end employers are willing to sort of foot the bill uh, for this. But our goal here is to sort of lay the tracks and demonstrate that in the uh, highest uh, need skill gap areas uh, like Epic, for example, like cybersecurity, like Salesforce, uh, a purely private model can work. Uh, and then once we've demonstrated that, and once we've laid those tracks, uh, we can begin talking about uh, how to use uh, philanthropic dollars or, or even public spending to try and build these on-ramps uh, to these uh, pathways or build pathways to truly middle skill jobs that may not pay as much uh, at the outset, but still provide that sort of upward mobility that we're looking for. So you saw this education friction even back in 2018 when you wrote your book, A New You, uh, which by the way, congratulations on your Wall Street Journal uh, recognition. I'm particularly proud because I wrote a quote for you for their, their back cover. <laughs> <laughs> Tell our listeners more about the student issues you observed back then, and I'm curious whether you've seen any progress uh, in the country since you've written the book. Oh, that's a great question. I, I didn't come at this from the standpoint of workforce or even uh, the labor market. Uh, I My background is in higher education. I started my career 20 years ago at Columbia University. I've uh, worked for universities. I've helped build universities. I've invested in higher education-related businesses. And it was really only sort of seven or eight years ago, kind of out of the, um, the Great Recession, that we were just seeing uh, not only uh, the crisis of college affordability, 
uh, super clearly, where the average student with student loan debt was graduating with north of $30,000 of student loan debt. And we had tens of millions of students who weren't even completing uh, a credential who were graduating with five, ten thousand $10,000 of student loan debt. It's just killer. Um, uh, but on the other side, if everyone who matriculated into college graduated uh, and then graduated into, call it a $60,000 a year job, that level of student loan debt would be easily affordable. So the two sides of the coin are affordability and then employability on the other side. And what we were seeing was sort of a sea change in the labor market that was not being met uh, by higher education. So the sea change in the labor market is digital transformation and the transformation of entry-level jobs from uh, you can learn how to do this job because you have a college degree, which is you know how the labor market worked when you and I graduated from college, to this is a very specific job where you're using you know these series of uh, tech or SaaS platforms to manage these various business functions. And if you don't have experience with uh, these specific platforms, what we call platform skills, and you've never worked in our industry before, we're not going to hire you. And, you know, we have uh, example uh, after example of industries and companies that used to sort of pre-Great Recession engage in and invest in entry-level training. That just disappeared. I mean, employers just have, have gotten a lot less patient around entry-level talent. A couple of good reasons for it are, uh, one, the increased cost of a bad hire, whereas today if you make a big mistake with a, with a hire, it can cost you big time, sometimes six figures. And increased churn at the entry level, where today about 50% of new college grads going into an entry-level job churn out of that job within two years. So why would you bother investing uh, in training that talent? Uh, you sort of have a free rider problem, right? If you make that investment, maybe they jump to your competitor. Your competitor benefits from the investment you've, you've made. And so the approach of the vast majority of employers in America today is I want the perfect candidate who's ready to be productive on day one in this job, and if they're not, then I'm not going to hire them, which is you know helps explain 10 million unfilled jobs in the country. And the fact that you have you know entry-level jobs uh, in a lot of uh, industries now, if you actually look at the job descriptions, they're not entry-level jobs. They're asking you for you know effectively years of experience in that field. So wh where, are, where are the pathways to these jobs? And so it was that sort of thinking from which we coined the sort of last mile training concept uh, and from which we began sort of investing in these uh, new apprenticeship pathways. That uh, The answer has to be something like that. Now, we don't know whether at the end of the day, 10 years from now, when we have thousands of new sort of intermediaries and apprenticeship pathways, are the majority of them going to be, you know, for-profit private sector Maybe. That's what we've seen in the UK. The UK, as they've begun to evolve their apprenticeship model, uh, something like two-thirds to three-quarters of these apprenticeship service providers are, are for-profit and you know taking government funding. Uh, but they don't have to be. We think there's a plenty of room for nonprofit uh, intermediaries, uh, even public intermediaries, to step in. But they're going to all have to do the same thing, uh, which is essentially reduce or eliminate the friction for the candidate on one side and for the employer on the other side, in the same way that all successful apprenticeship programs do. We've had some guests on the podcast who explain that part of the reason for the 10 million job openings is that there's a bias in the hiring process, that there's too much of a focus on degrees versus skills-based hiring. What's your assessment of where that stands and where do you think see it going? 
Yeah, uh, that's another great question. Look, I think the emphasis on degrees is just a symptom of a bigger problem, which is that employer job descriptions are kind of broken uh, and really reacting to the way in which uh, we currently hire. Uh, and the way we currently hire is we put a job online and within days uh, we get hundreds and hundreds of resumes uh, for that for that job because it's so easy to apply for a job. You could have applied for 10 jobs in the time <laughs> that you and I have been talking uh, already. And so no human hiring manager is looking at hundreds of applicants for a given position. Uh, they're all using applicant tracking systems uh, at the top of the uh, hiring funnel, which are crude keyword-based uh, matches, which are sort of literally looking at uh, how many of the terms in the job description appear in your resume. Uh, and if you meet a certain threshold, you get passed through to a human who will actually look at your resume. And if you don't, uh, you're going to be invisible to that human hiring manager. And so what that has prompted, you know, sort of almost instinctively on the part of hiring managers and HR managers uh, is sort of an arms race uh, where they're trying to just throw as many terms uh, into the job descriptions uh, as possible. And those terms could be education or degree related. Uh, they could be experience uh, related. And they're certainly skills related. And on the skills side, uh, and I've, I've written about this extensively, uh, there are only so many ways you can say critical thinking, problem solving, communication skills, but you can always add and find another sort of tech skill to add to these job descriptions. And so job descriptions have become sort of overly indexed towards technical or digital skills. And so that's another reason why we're having this misalignment we are in the market when if you look at what our you know colleges and universities are producing, have they dramatically shifted to producing candidates with you know, a wide range of specific tech and platform skills uh, in the way that uh, job descriptions have? They have not. They're certainly offering more uh, in the way of tech training and integrated tech uh, technology into their coursework, but you know, not nearly uh, enough to compensate for the dramatic shift in the labor market and the job descriptions that uh, are essentially determining the top of the funnel and who gets seen. That's the primary uh, challenge that we're that we're dealing with, and degree inflation and degree inclusion is is part of it. But the bigger problem is sort of how uh, employers are handling uh, and writing job descriptions, given the current crude filtering function that we have at the top of the hiring funnel. It's occurred to me that this skills based hiring phenomenon is is really a cure for the algorithm bias in the applicant tracking systems. Yeah, that leads me to think about AI and then what biases will come about in the ten-year time frame. And so I'm going to invite you now, Ryan, to put yourself into the ten-year future. How about giving us a peek at the emerging business models and digital technologies that you think will shift how people will experience the future of learning? Well, look, I've I've written about the emerging uh, what I call competency marketplace, uh, which is a, a vision. I thought we'd be there by now, <laughs> uh, and I thought we'd be there by now because I thought LinkedIn would have done more uh, in this in this direction. But you know, if you could imagine sort of a souped-up LinkedIn uh, where uh, your profile is not simply uh, sort of a recitation of your experience in education, uh, but rather a uh, long, 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 almost unintelligible laundry list of your skills and competencies that. Uh, won't be particularly uh, intelligible to a, a human, but will be very meaningful uh, to the algorithms and software on the other on the employer side. That's going to be 
not only evaluating you as an active candidate, but uh, constantly evaluating you as a passive candidate uh, for certain roles. Uh, and with that, you'll have a, a GPS for your own human capital development. So you'll be able to say, uh, here's where I'd like to go. Here's a job that you know I might want to target. Where do I fall short in terms of skills and competencies? And then uh, what's the best path uh, to remediating that shortfall, filling that gap? Uh, and odds are it's not going to be a four-year uh, or even a two-year master's degree program, but probably a series of uh, short upskilling experience, certificates, uh, industry-recognized certifications, and so forth uh, that you'll be directed to. And, you know, in that case, uh, <laughs> the technology uh, behind the competency marketplace will be extraordinarily powerful because it will be directing you to uh, employment and education opportunities. And, you know, colleges and universities, uh, which uh, today certainly play the central role in this ecosystem, could be reduced to kind of the level of the driver, uh, you know, on, an, on the Uber app, being asked to pick up a candidate at one place and drop that candidate off at, at another place, really with very little control, including overpricing of that service. But I think that despite those deleterious uh, impacts on traditional higher education, something like that is inevitable and will be very good for both candidates and uh, the labor market in general. So, uh, you see a, a, a bunch of, you know, I can probably count 20 or 30 companies that are trying to get at that, trying to get at that sort of marketplace uh, model, uh, trying to fill that gap between the education and employment ecosystem. But no one has uh, has solved it yet because it really requires solving this sort of marketplace flywheel uh, issue of, you know, how do we get hundreds of millions of candidates on the platform and then how do we get employers if we don't have the candidates and if we don't have employers, how do we attract the candidates to the platform? So uh, it is challenging. LinkedIn actually almost uniquely has the ability to do it, but uh, they haven't executed on that opportunity yet. I had high hopes for LinkedIn as well, because of the hundreds of millions of, of profiles that are on there, we as individuals continue to keep it fresh. So it's, it's a lot of good data for the algorithm to churn on. So you mentioned LinkedIn and that there's a whole group of uh, companies that are playing in this competency-based marketplace. Which innovation leaders should we keep an eye on now? Ah, we have a company, uh, Credly, uh, in our portfolio that uh, we are, we're super excited about. They're the digital credentialing leader. So that's the direction they come at it. Uh, so they're connecting learners, or as, as the Credly calls them, earners, with uh, employment opportunities uh, based on uh, newly recognized certifications uh, in specific skills. They've just launched Credly Recruit, which is their essentially marketplace uh, product uh, for doing that. I would also say Astrum U is a company that you should watch out for uh, as well. But there are, you know, like I say, there are, there, there are just, you know, so many of them uh, trying to come at this problem uh, from different directions. So I can't help but insert this question. I mean, with all the changes that you're helping to create, what do you see as the role of uh, so-called legacy education institutions? Yeah, I mean, I, on the whole, I would say I am quite bearish on the associates and bachelor's degree markets. With the shift in entry-level employment, as I've described, millions of um, younger people and older workers who are seeking sort of that first firm footing on you know a career ladder, getting a good job, uh, would be better served uh, via a faster and cheaper pathway to that good first job rather than a multi-year degree 
program. And as you look at how the labor market continues to evolve quickly, it just strikes me as unlikely uh, that an academic uh, institution or an institution run by academics will be able to sort of keep up, keep pace with those changes, and that the intermediaries that will increasingly, that will gain significant share at the expense of traditional higher education will be these much more employer-oriented, employer-connected intermediaries who not only are more likely to uh, be able to put forward friction-reducing models like the one I mentioned with Optimum, but also to um, sort of keep pace with the skills needed, which is a real problem for traditional higher ed where their one point of interface with um, the labor market is the career services office which is located in the you know one corner of the campus and you know career services is viewed as the province of that office and not the responsibility of you know any of the academic program uh, people uh, for the most part so uh, that I think is unsustainable uh, and so I do believe that in a decade you'll have millions of students who would have today enrolled in a traditional post-secondary institution pursuing these alternative faster and cheaper pathways via more employment-oriented intermediaries. But the opportunity for uh, higher ed is that those millions of new workers who go uh, sort of directly or more quickly into a job are still absolutely going to need the same or an increased level of cognitive skills, critical thinking skills, problem-solving skills, executive function skills that are today ostensibly being developed over the course of a bachelor's degree, although and so at some institutions, more questionably than others, those capabilities and skills aren't going to be developed by these, you know, new intermediaries. That that will remain the province and responsibility of uh, traditional higher education. And so, while I'm bearish on bachelor's and associate's degrees, I'm quite bullish on, you know, what are today master's programs and sort of post back certificate programs. But my view is that we'll need to sort of change the way we think about those from being sort of an and, right, bachelor's and master's or bachelor's and post-bac certificate to being an or where it goes from, you go from faster and cheaper pathway to first job, but then you have sort of an unbundled master's program or an unbundled uh, post-bac certificate program, which is specific to uh, the job you're coming out of and the industry you're in and the job you hope to get while focusing on building those cognitive skills, critical thinking skills, problem-solving skills, communication skills. Maybe it's still a multi-year program. Maybe it's full-time, or probably it's part-time program. Uh, you know, and my, my views are often uh, misunderstood as somehow I'm attacking uh, higher ed or saying, in the future, we won't need as much post-secondary education as we currently have. And that's that, that couldn't be more wrong. Uh, all I'm suggesting is that what we're going to need to do is restage how we consume that post-secondary education from kind of all you can eat in one sitting to what we need when we need it. And what we need, what we need it is going to be increasingly a faster and cheaper pathway to a good first job, work for a few years, then ascertain what secondary or tertiary pathway you're going to pursue to build those problem-solving communication skills, et cetera, that you're going to need to move on and move up uh, in your career. And I think that that second phase, those secondary and tertiary pathways, will will have to be the province of colleges and universities that will deliver those. So again, bearish on bachelors and associates, but very bullish on those sort of master's post-bac certificate 
programs, recognizing that they'll need to incorporate some of what currently occurs at the bachelor's or undergraduate level today. And let me remind our listeners, this is why I love getting Brian Craig's newsletter in my inbox. He's such a provocateur. And so let's close. What will Ryan Craig's next book be about? <laughs> I don't have time to write a book because I'm too busy building these pathways. Um, but once, once we've done it, I mean, this current fund, we're going to do it 10 times, and we're going to do it in healthcare IT and Salesforce and cybersecurity, instructional design. Uh, we're going to do it in data science. We're going to do it in digital marketing. We're going to do it in healthcare services, behavioral health, uh, cloud, quality assurance, and uh, once we've done it, we're going to know a lot more about what makes for an effective pathway to employment and for socioeconomic mobility. And so if I write another book in the next five years, uh, it's going to be about sort of what we've learned from all of these new pathways we've built, maybe the sort of the new American apprenticeship. Uh, maybe that's the title of the book, but it, the apprenticeship is not going to be defined by uh, whether or not we've jumped through uh, the requisite hoops at the Department of Labor in, in terms of filling out forms or whether we're you know, taking uh, WIOA money uh, for these programs. But again, based on the key characteristics of apprenticeships, which is you're reducing the friction for the candidate, uh, you're allowing them to learn while they earn, uh, and you're upskilling them, and then reducing the friction for the employer, namely allowing them to try the talent, the new unproven talent, before you're, they're being asked to make a hiring decision. Well, I certainly like the title that you propose. I want to be first in line to get a signed copy, Ryan. Well, I'm going to ask you for another blurb. <laughs> Definitely. Well, thank you very much, Ryan, for being with us today. It was great. Really always great to talk to you. I'm Vontone Kunlevin with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm-hmm.